1: Chapter One, of Badge of Infamy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Badge of Infamy by Lester Del Rey, read by Stephen H. Wilson of Prometheus Radio Theater. www.prometheusradiotheater.com. The air of the city's cheapest flophouse was thick, with the smells of harsh antiseptic and unwashed bodies. The early Christmas snowstorm had driven in every bum who could steal or beg the price of admission, and the long rows of cots were filled with fully clothed figures. Those who could afford the extra dime were huddled under thin, grimy blankets. The pariah, who had been Dr. Daniel Feldman, enjoyed no such luxury. He tossed fitfully on a bare cot, bringing his face into the dim light. It had been a handsome face, but now the black stubble of beard lay over gaunt features and sunken cheeks. He looked ten years older than his scant thirty-two, and there were beginnings of a snarl at the corners of his mouth. Clothes that had once been expensive were wrinkled and covered with grime that no amount of cleaning could remove. His tall, thin body was awkwardly curled up in a vain effort to conserve heat, and one of his hands instinctively clutched at his tiny bag of possessions. He stirred again, and suddenly jerked upright with a protest already forming on his lips. The ugly surroundings registered on his eyes, and he stared suspiciously at the other cots. But there was no sign that anyone had been trying to rob him of his bundle Or the precious bag of cheap tobacco. He started to relax back onto the couch when a sound caught his attention, even over the snoring of the others. It was a low wail, the sound of a man who can no longer control himself. Feldman swung to the cot on his left as the moan hacked off. The man there was well fed and clean shaven, but his face was gray with sickness. He was writhing and clutching his stomach. "'arching his back against the misery inside him. "'Space stomach,' Feldman diagnosed. "'He had no need of the weak, answering Nod. "'He'd treated such cases several times in the past. "'The disease was usually caused by the absence of gravity out in space, "'but it could be brought on later from abuse of the weakened internal organs, "'such as the intake of too much bad liquor. "'The man must have been frequenting the wrong space-front bars. "'Now,' he was obviously dying. Violent peristaltic contractions seemed to be tearing the intestines out of him, and the paroxysms were coming faster. His eyes darted to Feldman's tobacco sack, and there was animal appeal in them. Feldman hesitated, then reluctantly rolled a smoke. He held the cigarette while the spaceman took a long, gasping drag on it. He smoked the remainder himself, letting the harsh tobacco burn against his lungs and sicken his empty stomach. Then he shrugged and threaded his way through the narrow aisles toward the attendant. "'Better get a doctor,' he said bitterly when the young punk looked up at him. "'You got a man dying of space stomach on 214.' The sneer on the kid's face deepened. "'Yeah? We don't pay for doctors every time some wino wants to throw up. Forget it. Get back to where you belong, Bo.' "'You'll have a corpse on your hands in an hour,' Feldman insisted." "'I know space stomach, damn it.' "'The kid turned back to his lottery sheet. "'Go treat yourself if you want to play doctor. "'Go on, scram, before I toss you out in the snow.' "'One of Feldman's white-knuckled hands reached for the attendant. "'Then he caught himself. "'He started to turn back, hesitated, and finally faced the kid again. "'I'm not fooling, and I was a doctor,' he stated. "'My name is Daniel Feldman.' The attendant nodded absently until the words finally penetrated. He looked up, studied Feldman with surprised curiosity and growing contempt, and reached for the phone. Give me medical directory, he muttered. Feldman felt the kid's eyes on his back as he stumbled through the aisles to his cot again. He slumped down, rolling another cigarette in hands that shook. The sick man was approaching delirium now, and the moans were mixed with weak whining sounds of fear. Other men had wakened and were watching, but nobody made a move to help. The retching and writhing of the sick man had begun to weaken, but it was still not too late to save him. Hot water and skillful massage could interrupt the paroxysms. In fifteen minutes, Feldman could have stopped the attack completely. He found his feet on the floor and his hands already reaching out, Savagely, he pulled himself back, sure he could save the man, and wind up in the gas chamber. There'd be no mercy for his second offense against lobby laws. If the spaceman lived, Feldman might get off with a flogging. That was the standard punishment for a pariah who stepped out of line. But with his luck, there would be a heart arrest, and another juicy story for the papers. Idealism. The medical lobby made a lot out of the word. But it wasn't for him. pariah had no business thinking of others. As Feldman sat there staring, the spaceman grew quieter. Sometimes, even at this stage, massage could help. It was harder without liberal supplies of hot water, but the massage was really the important treatment. It was the trembling of Feldman's hands that stopped him. He no longer had the strength or the certainty to make the massage effective. He was glaring at his hands in self-disgust when the legal doctor arrived. The man was old and tired. Probably he had been another idealist who had wound up defeated, content to leave things up to the established procedures of the medical lobby. He looked it as he bent over the dying man. The doctor turned back at last to the attendant. Too late. The best I can do is ease his pain. The call should have been made half an hour earlier. He had obviously never handled space stomach before he administered a hypo that probably held Narcanal. Feldman watched, his guts tightening sympathetically for the shock that would be to the sick man. But at least it would shorten his sufferings. The final seizure lasted only a minute or so. "'Hopeless,' the doctor said. His eyes were clouded for a moment, and then he shrugged. "'Well, I'll make out a death certificate. Anyone here know his name?' His eyes swung about the cots until they came to rest on Feldman. He frowned, and a twisted smile curved his lips. Feldman, isn't it? You still look something like your pictures. Do you know the deceased? Feldman shook his head bitterly. No, I don't know his name. I don't even know why he wasn't cyanotic at the end, if it was Space Stomach. Do you, doctor? The old man threw a startled glance at the corpse. Then he shrugged and nodded to the attendant. "'Well, go through his things. "'If he still has a space ticket, I can get his name from that.' The kid began pawing through the bag that had fallen from the cot. He dragged out a pair of shoes, half a bottle of cheap rum, a wallet, and a bronze space ticket. He wasn't quick enough with the wallet, and the doctor took it from him. "'Medical lobby authorization.' "'If he has any money, it covers my fee, and the rest goes to his own lobby.' "'There were several bills of large denominations. "'He turned the ticket over and began filling in the death certificate. "'Arthur Billings, Space Lobby, Crewman, Cause of Death, "'Idiopathic Gastroenteritis, and Delirium Tremens.' "'There had been no evidence of Delirium Tremens, "'but apparently the doctor felt he had scored a point. "'He tossed the space ticket toward the shoes.' closed his bag, and prepared to leave. "'Hey, Doc!' the attendant's voice was indignant. "'Hey, what about my reporting fee?' The doctor stopped. He glanced at the kid, then toward Feldman, his face a mixture of speculation and dislike. He took a dollar bill from the wallet. "'That's right,' he admitted. "'The fee for reporting a solvent case. Medical lobby rules apply, even to a man who breaks them.' The kid's hand was out, but the doctor dropped the dollar onto Feldman's cot. "'There's your fee, pariah.' He left, forcing the protesting attendant to precede him. Feldman reached for the bill. It was blood money, for letting a man die, but it meant cigarettes and food, or shelter for another night, if he could get a mission meal. He no longer could afford pride. Grimly he pocketed the bill— Staring at the face of the dead man. It looked back sightlessly, now showing a faint speckling of tiny dots. They caught Feldman's eyes, and he bent closer. There should be no black dots on the skin of a man who died of space stomach, and there should have been cyanosis. He swore and bent down to find the wrecks of his shoes. He couldn't worry about anything now but getting away from here before the attendant made trouble. His eyes rested on the shoes of the dead man, sturdy boots that would last for another year. They could do the corpse no good. Someone else would steal them if he didn't. But he hesitated, cursing himself. The right boot fitted better than he could have expected, but something got in the way as he tried to put the left one on. His fingers found the bronze ticket. He turned it over, considering it. He wasn't ready to fraud his identity for what he'd heard of life on the spaceships. Yet but he shoved it into his pocket and finished lacing the boots. Outside, the snow was falling, but it had turned to slush, and the sidewalk was soggy underfoot. There was going to be no work shoveling snow, he realized. This would melt before the day was over. Feldman hunched the suit coat up, shivering as the cold bit into him. The boots felt good, though. If he'd had socks, they would have been completely comfortable. He passed a cheap restaurant, and the smell of the synthetics set his stomach churning. It had been two days since his last real meal, and the dollar burned in his pocket. But he had to wait. There was a fair chance this early that he could scavenge something edible. He shuffled on. After a while, the cold bothered him less, and he passed through the hunger spell. He rolled another smoke and sucked at it, hardly thinking. It was better that way. It was much later when the big Caduceus set into the sidewalk snapped him back to awareness of where he'd traveled. His undirected feet had led him much too far uptown following old habits. This was the medical lobby building where he'd spent more than enough time, including three weeks in custody before they stripped him of all rank and status. His eyes wandered to the ornate entrance where he'd first emerged as a pariah. He'd meant to walk down those steps as if he were still a man. But each step had drained his resolution, until he'd finally covered his face and slunk off, knowing himself for what the world had branded him. He stood there now staring at the smug young medical politicians and the tired old general practitioners filing in and out. One of the latter halted, fumbled in his pocket, and drew out a quarter. Merry Christmas, he said dully. Feldman fingered the coin. Then he saw a gray medical policeman watching him, and he knew it was time to move on. Sooner or later, someone would recognize him here. He clutched the quarter and turned to look for a coffee shop that sold the synthetics to which his metabolism had been switched. No shop would serve him here, but he could buy coffee and a piece of cake to take out. A flurry of motion registered from the corner of his eye, and he glanced back. Taxi! Taxi! The girl rushing down the steps had a clear soprano voice, cultured and commanding. The gray medical uniform seemed molded to her shapely figure, and her red hair glistened in the lights of the street. Her snub nose and determined mouth weren't the current fashion, but nobody stopped to think of fashions when they saw her. She didn't have to be the daughter of the president of Medical Lobby to rule. It was Chris. Chris Feldman once, and now Chris Ryan again. Feldman swung toward a cab. For a moment, his attitude was automatic and assured, and the cab stopped before the driver noticed his clothes. He picked up the bag Chris dropped and swung it onto the front seat. She was fumbling in her change purse as he turned back to shut the door. Thank you, my good man, she said. She could be gracious, even to a pariah, when his homage suited her. She dropped two quarters into his hand, raising her eyes recognition flowed into them, followed by icy shock. She yanked the cab door shut and shouted something to the driver. The cab took off with a rush that left Feldman in a backwash of slush and mud. He glanced down at the coins in his hand. It was his lucky day, he thought bitterly. He moved across the street and away, not bothering about the squeal of brakes and the honking of horns. He looked back only once toward the glowing sign that topped the building. Your health is our business. Then the great symbol of the health business faded behind him, and he stumbled on, sucking incessantly at the cigarettes he rolled. One hand clutched the bronze badge belonging to the dead man, and his stolen boots drove onward through the melting snow. It was Christmas, in the year 2100, on the Protectorate of Earth. End Recording Chapter 2 of badge of infamy, this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Badge of infamy by Lester Del Rey, read by Stephen H. Wilson of Prometheus Radio Theater, www.prometheusradiotheater.com. Two. LOBBY Feldman had set his legs the problem of heading for the Great Spaceport and escape from Earth, and he let them take him without further guidance. His mind was wrapped up in a whirl of the past, his past, and that of the whole planet. Both pasts had in common the growth and sudden ruin of idealism. Idealism. Throughout history some men had sought the ideal, and most had called it freedom— Only fools expected absolute freedom, but wise men dreamed up many systems of relative freedom, including democracy. They had tried that in America as the last fling of the dream. It had been a good attempt, too. The men who drew the Constitution had been pretty practical dreamers. They came to their task after a bitter war and a worse period of wild chaos, and they had learned where idealism stopped and idiocy began. They set up a republic with all the elements of democracy that they considered safe. It had worked well enough to make America the number one power of the world, but the men who followed the framers of the new plan were a different sort, without the knowledge of practical limits. The privileges their ancestors had earned in blood and care became automatic rights. Practical men tried to explain that there were no such rights, that each generation had to pay for its rights with responsibility. That kind of talk didn't get far. People wanted to hear about rights, not about duties. They took the phrase that all men were created equal and left out the implied kicker, that equality was in the sight of God and before the law. They wanted an equality with the greatest men without giving up their drive toward mediocrity, and they meant to have it. In a way, they got it. They got the vote extended to everyone. The man on subsidy or public dole could vote to demand more, The man who read of nothing beyond sex crimes could vote on the great political issues of the world. No ability was needed for his vote. In fact, he was assured that voting alone was enough to make him a fine and noble citizen. He loved that, if he bothered to vote at all that year. He became a great man by listing his unthought, hungry desire for someone to take care of him without responsibility. So he went out and voted for the man who promised him most, or who looked most like what his limited dreams felt to be a father image, or son image, or hero image. He never bothered later to see how the men he'd elected had handled the jobs he had given them. Someone had to look, of course, and someone did. Organized special interests stepped in where the mob had failed. Lobbies grew up. There had always been pressure groups, but now they developed into a third arm of the government. The old farm lobby was unbeatable, the big farmers shaped the laws they wanted. They convinced the little farmers it was for the good of all, and they made the story stick well enough to swing the farm vote. They made the laws when it came to food and crops. The last of the great lobbies was space, probably. It was an accident that grew up so fast it never even knew it wasn't a real part of the government. It developed during a period of chaos, when another country called Russia got the first hunk of metal above the atmosphere and when the representatives who had been picked for everything but their grasp of science and government went into panic over a myth of national prestige. The space effort was turned over to the aircraft industry, which had never been able to manage itself successfully except under the stimulus of war or a threat of war. The failing airplane industry became the space combine overnight, and nobody kept track of how big it was except a few sharp operators. They worked out a system of subcontracts that spread the profits so wide that hardly a company of any size in the country wasn't getting a share. Thus, a lot of patriotic, noble voters got their pay from companies in the lobby block and could be panicked by the lobby at the first mention of recession. So Space Lobby took over completely in its own field. It developed enough pressure to get whatever appropriations it wanted, even over presidential veto. It created the only space experts— which meant that the men placed in government agencies to regulate it came from its own ranks. The other lobbies learned a lot from space. There had been a medical lobby long before, but it had been a conservative group, mostly concerned with protecting medical autonomy and ethics. It also tried to prevent government control of treatment and payment, feeling that it couldn't trust the people to know where to stop. But its history was a long series of retreats. It fought what it called socialized medicine. But the people wanted their troubles handled free, which meant by government spending, since that could be added to the national debt and thus didn't seem to cost anything. It lost, and eventually the government paid most medical costs without doctors working on a fixed fee. Then quantity of treatment paid, rather than quality. Competence no longer mattered so much. The lobby lost, but didn't know it, because the lowered standards of competence in the profession lowered the caliber of men running the political aspects of that profession as exemplified by the lobby. It took a worldwide plague to turn the tide. The plague began in old China. Anything could start there, with more than a billion people huddled in one area and a few madmen planning to conquer the world. It might have been a laboratory mutation, but nobody could prove it. It wiped out two billion people depopulated Africa and most of Asia, and wrecked Europe, leaving only America comparatively safe to take over. An obscure scientist in one of the laboratories run by the medical lobby found a cure before the first waves of the epidemic hit America. Rutherford Ryan, then head of the lobby, made sure that medical lobby got all the credit. By the time the world recovered, America ran it, and the medical lobby was untouchable. Ryan made a deal with space lobby, And the two effectively ran the world. None of the smaller lobbies could buck them, and neither could the government. There was still a president and a congress, as there had been a senate under the Roman Caesars. But the two lobbies ran themselves as they chose. The real government had become a kind of oligarchy, as it always did after too much false democracy ruined the ideals of real and practical self rule. A man belonged to his lobby, just as a serf had belonged to his feudal landlord. It was a safe world now. Maybe progress had been halted at about the level of 1980, but so long as the citizens didn't break the rules of their lobbies, they had very little to worry about. For that, for security and the right not to think, most people were willing to leave well enough alone. Some rules seemed harsh, of course, such as the law that all operations had to be performed in lobby hospitals. But that could be justified. It was the only safe kind of surgery— and the only way to make sure there was no unsupervised experimentation, such as that which supposedly caused the plague. The rule was now an absolute ethic of medicine. It also made for better fees. Feldman's father had stuck by the rule, but had questioned it. Feldman learned not to question in medical school. He scored second in medical ethics only to Christina Ryan. He had never figured why she singled him out for her attentions but he gloried in both those attentions and the results. He became automatically a rising young man, the favorite of the daughter of the lobby president. He went through internship without a sign of trouble. Chris humored him in his desire to spend three years of practice in a poor section loaded with disease, and her father approved. Such selfless dedication was the perfect image projection for a future son-in-law. In return, he agreed to follow that period by becoming an administrator, a doctor's doctor, as they put it. They were married in April, and his office was ready in May, complete with a staff of eighty. The publicity releases had gone out, and the public relations lobby that handled news and education was paid to begin the greatest build-up any young genius ever had. They celebrated that with a little party of some four hundred people and reporters at Ryan's Lodge in Canada it was to be a gala weekend. It was then that Baxter shot himself. Baxter had been Feldman's closest friend in the lobby. He'd come along to handle press relations, and had gotten romantic about the countryside, never having been out of a city before. He hired a guide and went hunting, eighty miles beyond the last outpost of civilization. Somehow, he got his hand on a gun, though only guides were supposed to touch them, managed to overcome its safety devices, and then pulled the trigger with the gun pointed the wrong way. Chris, Feldman, and Harnett from public relations had accompanied him on the trip. They were sitting in a nearby car while Feldman enjoyed the scenery. Chris made further plans, and Harnett gathered material. There was also a photographer and writer, but they hadn't been introduced by name. Feldman reached Baxter first The man was moaning and scared, and he was bleeding profusely. Only a miracle had saved him from instant death. The bullet had struck a rib, been deflected and robbed of some of its energy, and had barely reached the heart. But it had pierced the pericardium, as best Feldman could guess, and it could be fatal at any moment. He'd reached for a probe without thinking. Chris knocked his hand aside. She was right, of course. He couldn't operate outside a hospital— but they had no phone in the lodge where the guide lived, and no way to summon an ambulance. They'd have to drive Baxter back in the car, which would almost certainly result in his death. When Feldman seemed uncertain, Harnett had given his warning in a low but vehement voice. "'You touch him, Dan, and I'll spread it in every one of our media. I'll have to. It's the only way to retain public confidence. There'd be a leak.' With all the guides and others here, and we can't afford that. I like you. You have color. But touch that wound, and I'll crucify you." Chris added her own threats. She'd spent years making him the outlet for all her ambitions, denied because women were still only second-rate members of medical lobby. She couldn't let it go now. And she was probably genuinely shocked. Baxter groaned again and started to bleed more profusely. There wasn't much equipment. Feldman operated with a pocket knife sterilized in a bottle of expensive scotch, and only anodyne tablets in place of anesthesia. He got the bullet out and sewed up the wound with a bit of surgical thread he'd been using to tie up a torn good luck emblem. The photographer and writer recorded the whole thing. Chris swore harshly and beat her fists against the bowl of a tree but Baxter lived. He recovered completely, and was shocked at the heinous thing that had been done to him. They crucified Feldman. End recording.
0: Chapter 3
1: of Badge of Infamy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Badge of Infamy by Lester Del Rey Read by Stephen H. Wilson of Prometheus Radio Theatre www.prometheusradiotheater.com. 3. Spaceman Most crewmen lived rough, ugly lives, and usually short ones. Passengers and officers on the big tubs were given the equivalent of gravity in spinning compartments, but the crews rode free. The lucky crewmen lived through their accidents, got space stomach now and then, and recovered. Nobody cared about the others. Feldman's ticket was work-stamped for the Navajo, and nobody questioned his identity. He suffered through the agony of acceleration on the shuttle up to the orbital station, then was sick as acceleration stopped, but he was able to control himself enough to follow other crewmen down a hall of the station toward the Navajo. The big ships never touched a planet, always docking at the stations. A checker met the crew and reached for their badges. He barely glanced at them, punched a mark for each on his checkoff sheet, and handed them back. Deckman forward, Tubman to the rear, he ordered. Navajo blasts in fifteen minutes. Hey, you. Your tubes. Feldman grunted. He should have expected it. Tube men had the lowest lot of all the crew. Between the killing work, the heat of the tubes, and the occasional doses of radiation, their lives weren't worth the metal value of their tickets. He began pulling himself clumsily along a shaft, dodging freight the loaders were tossing from hand to hand. A bag hit his head, drawing blood, and another caught him in the groin. Watch it, Bo! a loader yelled at him. You dent that bag and they'll brig you. Can't you see it's got a special courtesy stripe? It had a brilliant green stripe, he saw. It also had a name, printed in block letters, that shouted their identity before he could read the words, Dr. Christina Ryan, Southport, Mars. And he had chosen this time to leave Earth. Suddenly he was glad he was assigned to the tubes. It was the one place on the ship where he'd be least likely to run into her. As a doctor and a courtesy passenger, she'd have complete run of the ship, but she'd hardly bother with the dangerous and unpleasant tube section. He dragged his way back, beginning to sweat with the effort. The Navajo was an old ship, a lot of the handholds were missing, and he had to throw himself along by erratic leaps. He was gaining proficiency, but not enough to handle himself if the ship blasted off. Time was growing short when he reached the aft bunk room where the other tube men were waiting. Ben, one husky introduced himself. Tube chief. Know how to work this? Feldman could see that they were assembling a small still. He'd heard of the phenomenal quantities of beer spacemen drank, and now he realized what really happened to it. Hard liquor was supposed to be forbidden, but they made their own. I can work it, he decided. Um, I'm Dan. Okay, Dan, Ben glanced at the clock. Hit the sacks, boys. By the time Feldman could settle into the sack-like hammock, the Navajo began to shake faintly, and weight piled up. It was mild compared to that on the shuttle, since the big ships couldn't take high acceleration. Space had been conquered for more than a century, but the ships were still flimsy tubs that took months to reach Mars, using immense amounts of fuel. Only the valuable plant hormones from Mars made commerce possible at the ridiculously high freight rate. Three hours later, he began to find out why spacemen didn't seem to fear dying or turning pariah. The tube quarters had grown insufferably hot during the long blast, but the main tube room was blistering as Ben led the men into it. The chief handed out spacesuits and motioned for Dan. Greenhorn, ain't ya? Okay, I'll take you with me. We go out in the tubes and pull the lining. I pry up the stuff, you carry it back and stack it. They sealed off the tube room, pumped out the air, and went into the steaming, mildly radioactive tubes, just big enough for a man on his hands and knees. Beyond the tube mouth was empty space, waiting for the man who slipped. Ben began ripping out the eroded blocks with a special tool. Feldman carried them back and stacked them along with the others. A plasma furnace melted them down into new blocks. The work grew progressively worse as the distance to the tube room increased. The tube mouth yawned closer and closer there were no handholds there only the friction of a man's body in the tube life settled into a dull routine of labor sleep and the brief relief of the crude white mule from the still they were 6 weeks out and almost finished with the tube cleaning when number 2 tube blew bits of the remaining radioactive fuel must have collected slowly until they reached the blow point feldman in number 1 would have gone sailing out into space, but Ben reacted at once. As the ship leaped slightly, Feldman brought up sharply against the chief's braced body. For a second, their fate hung in the balance. Then it was over, and Ben shoved him back, grinning faintly. He jerked his thumb and touched helmets briefly. There they go, Dan. The two men who had been working in number two were charred lumps, drifting out into space. No further comment was made on it, except that they'd have to work harder from now on, since they were short handed. That rest period, Feldman came down with a mild attack of space stomach, which meant no more drinking for him, and was off work for a day. Then the pace picked up. The tubes were cleared, and they began laying the new lining for the landing blasts. There was no time for thought after that. Mars Orbital Station lay close when the work was finished. Ben slapped Feldman on the back. "'He ain't bad for a greenie, Dan. "'We all get six-day passes on Mars. "'Hit the sack now so you won't waste time sleeping, then. "'We'll hear it when the ship berths.' "'Feldman didn't hear it, but the others did. "'He felt Ben shaking his shoulder, "'trying to drag him out of the sack. "'Grab your junk, Dan. "'Ben picked up Feldman's nearly empty bag "'and tossed it toward him before his eyes were fully open. "'He grabbed for it and missed. "'He grabbed again, with Ben's laughter in his ears.' The bag hit the wall and fell open, spilling its contents. Feldman gathered it up, but the chief was no longer laughing. A big hand grabbed up the space ticket suddenly, and there was no friendliness now on Ben's face. Art Billings card, Ben told the other tubeman. Five trips I made with Art. He was saving his money. Want to buy a farm on Mars? Five trips and one more to go before he had enough. Now you show up with his ticket. The tubeman moved forward toward Feldman. There was no indecision. To them, apparently, trial had been held and sentence passed. Wait a minute, Feldman began. Billings died of... A fist snaked past his raised hand and connected with his jaw. He bounced off a wall. A wrench sailed toward him, glanced off his arm, and ripped at his muscles. Another heavy fist struck. Abruptly, Ben's voice cut through their yells. Hold it! He shoved through the group tossing men backwards. "'Stow it! We can take care of him later. Right now this is captain's business. You fools want to lose your leave!' He indicated two of the others. "'You two, bring him along, and keep him quiet!' The two grabbed Feldman's arms and dragged him along as the chief began pulling his way forward through the tubes up towards the control section of the ship. Feldman took a quick glance at their faces and made no effort to resist. They obviously would have enjoyed any chance to subdue him. They were stopped twice by minor officers, then sent on. They finally found the captain near the exit lock, apparently assisting the passengers to leave. Most of them went on into the shuttle, but Chris Ryan remained behind as the captain listened to Ben's report and inspected the false ticket. Finally, the captain turned to Feldman. You, what's your name? "'Chris's eyes were squarely on Feldman, cold and furious. "'He was Dr. Daniel Feldman, Captain Marker,' she stated. "'Feldman stood paralyzed. "'He'd been unwilling to face Chris. "'He wanted to avoid all the past. "'But the idea that she would denounce him "'had never entered his head. "'There was no medical rule involved. "'She knew that, as a pariah, "'he was forbidden to board a passenger ship, of course.' but she'd been his wife once. Marker bowed slightly to her. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. I should take this criminal back to Earth in chains, I suppose, but he's hardly worth the freightage. You men, want to take him down to Mars and ground him there? Ben grinned and touched his forelock. Thank you, sir. We'd enjoy that. Good. His pay reverts to the ship's fund. That's all, men. Feldman started to protest but a fist lashed savagely against his mouth. He made no other protests as they dragged him into the crew shuttle that took off for Southport. He avoided their eyes and sat hunched over. It was Ben who finally broke the silence. What happened to Art's money? He had a pile on him. Go to hell. Give, I said. Ben twisted his arm back toward his shoulder, applying increasing pressure. A doctor took it for his fee when Billings died of space stomach. Damn you, I couldn't help him. Ben looked at the others. Med lobby fee, eh? All the market will take. Hmm. Could be. Maybe. He shrugged. Okay. Reasonable doubt. We won't kill you, Bo. Not quite we won't. The shuttle landed and Ben handed out the little helmets and aspirators that made life possible in Mars's thin air. Outside, the tubeman took turns holding Feldman and beating him while the passengers disembarked from their shuttle. As he slumped into unconsciousness, he had a picture of Chris Ryan's frozen face as she moved steadily toward the port station. End Recording CHAPTER Four OF BADGE OF INFAMY. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. BADGE OF INFAMY. By Lester Del Rey. Read by Stephen H. Wilson. Of Prometheus Radio Theatre. www.prometheusradiotheatre.com 4. MARTIAN It was night when Feldman came to, and the temperature was dropping rapidly. He struggled to sit up through a fog of pain. Somewhere in his bag he should have an anodyne tablet that would kill any ache. He finally found the pill and swallowed it, fumbling with the aspirator lip opening. The aspirator meant life to him now, he suddenly realized— He twisted to stare at the tiny charge indicator for the battery. It showed half charge. Then he saw that someone had attached another battery beside it. He puzzled briefly over it, but his immediate concern was for shelter. Apparently he was still where he had been knocked out. There was a light coming from the little station, and he headed for that, fumbling for the few quarters that represented his entire fortune. Maybe it would have been better if the tube men had killed him. Batteries were an absolute necessity here. Food and shelter would be expensive, and he had no skills to earn his way. At most, he had only a day or so left. But meantime, he had to find warmth before the cold killed him. The tiny restaurant in the station was still open, and the air was warm inside. He pulled off the aspirator, shutting off the battery. The counterman didn't even glance up as he entered. Feldman gazed at the printed menu and flinched soup he ordered it was the cheapest item he could find the counterman stared at him obviously spotting his earth origin you adjusted to synthetics feldman nodded earth operated on a mixed diet with synthetics for all who couldn't afford the natural foods there but mars was all synthetic many of the chemicals in food could exist in either of two forms or isomers they were chemically alike but differently crystallized. Sometimes either form was digestible, but frequently the body could use only the isomer to which it was adjusted. Martian plants produced different isomers from those on Earth. Since the synthetic foods turned out to be Mars normal, that was probably the more natural form. Research designed to let the early colonists live off native food here had turned up an enzyme that enabled the body to handle either isomer In a few weeks of eating Martian or synthetic food, the body adapted. Without more enzyme, it lost its power to handle Earth-normal food. The cheapness of synthetics and the discovery that many diseases common to Earth would not attack Mars-normal bodies led to the wide use of synthetics on Earth. No pariah could have been expected to afford Earth-normal. Feldman finished the soup and found a cigarette that was smokable. Any objections if I sit in the waiting room? He'd expected a rejection, but the counterman only shrugged. The waiting room was almost dark, and the air was chilly, but there was normal pressure. He found a bench and slumped onto it, lighting his cigarette. He'd missed the smokes, but probably not for long. He finished the cigarette reluctantly and sat huddled on the bench, waiting for morning. The airlock opened later, and feet sounded on the boards of the waiting room floor, But he didn't look up until a thin beam of light hit him. Then he sighed and nodded. The shoes, made of some odd fiber, didn't look like those of a cop, but this was Mars. He could see only a hulking shadow behind the light. You the man who was a medical doctor? The voice was dry and old. Yeah, Feldman answered, once. Good. Thought that space crewman was just lying drunk at first come along, Doc. Why? It didn't matter, but if they wanted him to move on, they'd have to push a little harder. The light swung up to show the other. He was the shade of old leather with a bleached patch of sandy hair and the deepest gray eyes Feldman had ever seen. It was a face that could have belonged to a country storekeeper in New England, with the same hint of dry humor. The man was dressed in padded Levi's, and a leather jacket of unguessable age. His aspirator seemed worn and patched, and one big hand fumbled with it. "'Because we're friends, Doc,' the voice drawled at him. "'Because you might as well come with us as sit here. Maybe we have a job for you.' Feldman shrugged and stood up. If the man was a lobby policeman, he was different from the usual kind. Nothing could be worse than the present prospects.' They went out through the doors of the waiting room, toward a rattle-trap vehicle. It looked something like a cross between a schoolboy's jalopy and a scaled-down army tank of former times. The treads were caterpillar-style, and the stubby body was completely enclosed. A tiny airlock stuck out from the rear. Two men were inside, both bearded. The old man grinned at them. Mark. Lou. Meet Doc Feldman. Sit, Doc. I'm Jake Mullins. You might say we were farmers. The motor started with a wheeze. The tractor swung about and began heading away from Southport toward the desert dunes. It shook and rattled, but it seemed to make good time. I don't know anything about farming, Feldman protested. Jake shrugged. No, of course not. A couple of our friends heard about you where a spaceman was getting drunk and tipped us off. We know who you are. Here. "'Try a brachy. Feldman took what seemed to be a cigarette and studied it doubtfully. It was coarse and fibrous inside, with a thin, hard shell that seemed to be a natural growth, as if it had been chopped from some vine. He lighted it, not knowing what to expect. Then he coughed as the bitter, rancid smoke burned at his throat. He started to throw it down, and hesitated. Jake was smoking one, and it had killed the craving for tobacco almost instantly.' Some like them. <laughs> Most don't, Jake said. They won't hurt you. Look, see that? Old Martian ruins, built by some race a million years ago. Only a half dozen on Mars. It was a clump of weathered stone buildings in the light from the tractor, and Feldman had seen better in stereo shots. It was interesting only because it connected with a legendary Martian race, like the canals that showed from space but could not be seen on the surface of the planet. Feldman waited for the other to go on, but Jake was silent. Finally, he ground out the butt of the weed. Okay, Jake, what do you want with me? Consultation, maybe. Ever hear of herb doctors? I'm one of them. Feldman knew that the lobby permitted some leniency here due to the scarcity of real medical help. There was only one decent hospital at Northport on the opposite side of the planet. Jake sighed and reached for another weed. Yeah, I'm pretty good with herbs, but I got a sick village on my hands and I can't handle it. We can't all mortgage our work to pay for a trip to Northport. Southport's all messed up while the new she-doctor gets her metabolism changed. Maybe the old guy there would have helped, but he died a couple of months ago. So it looks like you're our only hope. Then you have no hope, Feldman told him sickly. I'm a pariah, Jake. I can't do a thing for you. We heard about your argument with the lobby. News reaches Mars. But these are mighty sick people, Doc. Feldman shook his head. Better take me back. I'm not allowed to practice medicine. The charge would be first-degree murder if anything happened. Lou leaned forward. Shall I talk to him, Jake? The old man grimaced. Time enough. Let him see what we got first. Sand howled against the windshield, and the tractor bumped and surged along. Feldman took another of the weeds and tried to estimate their course. But he had no idea where they were when the tractor finally stopped. There was a village of small huts that seemed to be merely entrances to living quarters dug under the surface. They led him into one and threw a tunnel into a large room filled with simple cots and the unhappy sounds of sick people. Two women were disconsolately trying to attend the half-dozen sick, four children and two adults. Their faces brightened as they saw Jake, then fell. Ebb and Tilda died, they reported. Feldman looked at the two figures under the sheets and whistled. The same black specks he had seen on the face of Billings covered the skins of the two old people who had died. Funny, Jake said slowly. They didn't act like the others. And they sure died mighty fast. Darn it, I had it figured for that stuff in the book, infantile paralysis. How about it, Doc? Sort of like a cold, stiff, sore neck. It was clearly polio, one of the diseases that could attack Mars' normal flesh. Feldman nodded at the symptoms, staring at the sick kids. He shrugged, finally. There's a cure for it, but I don't have the serum. Neither do you, or you wouldn't have brought me here. I couldn't help if I wanted to. The old book didn't list a cure, Jake told him, but it said the kids didn't have to be crippled. There was something about a Kenny treatment. Doc, does the stuff really cripple for life? Feldman saw one of the boys flinch. He dropped his eyes, remembering the lobby's efficient spy service on Earth and wondering what it was like here, but he knew the outcome. Damn you, Jake! Jake chuckled. Thought you would. We sure appreciate it. Just tell us what to do, Doc. Feldman began writing down his requirements, trying to remember the details of the treatment. Exercise, hot compresses, massage. It was coming back to him. He'd have to do it himself, of course, to get the feel of it. He couldn't explain it well enough, but he couldn't turn his back on the kids, either. Maybe I can help, he said doubtfully as he moved toward a cot. "'No, Doc.' Jake's voice wasn't amused any longer, and he held the younger man back. "'You're doing us a favor, and I'll be darned if I let you stick your neck out too far. You can't treat yourself. Mars is tougher than Earth. You should live under Space Lobby and Medical Lobby here for a while. Oh, maybe they don't mind a few fools like me being herb doctors, but they'd sure hate to have a man who can do real medicine outside their hands.' You let me do it, or get in the tractor and I'll have Lou drive you back. Once you start in here, there'll be no stopping, believe me. Feldman looked at him, seeing the colonials around him for the first time as people. It had been a long time since he'd been treated as a fellow human by anyone. Jake was right, he knew. Once he put his hand to the bandage, eventually there'd be no turning back from the scalpel. These people needed medical help too desperately. Eventually the news would spread, and the lobby police would come for him. Chris couldn't afford to shield him. In fact, he was sure now that she'd hunt him night and day. "'Don't be a fool, Jake,' he ordered brusquely. He handed his list to one of the women. "'You'll have to learn to do what I do,' he told the people there. "'You'll have to work like fools for weeks. But there won't be many crippled children, I can promise that much.' He blinked sharply at the sudden hope in their eyes." but his mind went on wondering how long it would be before the inevitable would catch up with him. With luck, maybe a few months, but he hadn't been blessed with any superabundance of luck. It would probably be less time than he thought.
0: End Recording
1: CHAPTER Five OF BADGE OF INFAMY. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. BADGE OF INFAMY by Lester Del Rey. Read by Stephen H. Wilson of Prometheus Radio Theatre. www.prometheusradiotheatre.com 5 surgery doc feldman's luck was better than he had expected for an earth year he was a doctor again moving about from village to village as he was needed and doing what he could the village had been isolated during the early colonization when mars made a feeble attempt to break free of space lobby their supplies had been cut off and they had been forced to do for themselves now they were largely self-sufficient They grew native plants and extracted hormones in crude little chemical plants. The hormones were traded to the big chemical plants for a pittance to buy what had to come from Earth. Other jury-rigged affairs synthesized much of their food, but mostly they learned to get along on what Mars provided. Doc Feldman learned from them. Money was no longer part of his life. He ate with whatever family needed him and slipped into the life around him. He was learning Martian medicine and finding that his Earth courses were mostly useless. No wonder the villages distrusted lobby doctors. Doc had his own little laboratory where he had managed to start making Mars normal penicillin, a primitive antibiotic, but better than nothing. Jake had come to remind him that it was his first anniversary, and now they were smoking weed together. "'Sheer luck, Jake,' Doc repeated." You Martians are tough, but someday someone is going to die under my care, with the little equipment I have. Then, Jake nodded slowly, Maybe, Doc, and maybe someday Mars will break free of the lobbies. You'd better pray for that. I've been— Doc stopped, realizing what he'd started to say. The old man chuckled. You've been talking rebellion for months, Doc. Doc. I hear rumors. Whenever you get mad, you want us to secede. But you don't really mean it yet. You can't picture any government but the one you're used to. Doc grinned. Jake had a point. But it was not as strong as it would have been a few months before. The towns under the lobby were cheap imitations of Earth. But here, divorced to a large extent from the lobbies, the villages were making Mars their own. Their ways might be strange, but they worked. Jake shifted his body in the weak sunlight. Newton Village forgot to report a death on time. I hear Ryan is sweating them out, trying to prove it was your fault. There was no evidence against him yet, Doc was sure, but Chris was out to prove something and to get a reputation as a top-flight administrator. It must have hurt when they shipped her here as head of the Lesser Hemisphere of Mars, She'd expected to use Feldman as a front while she became the actual ruler of the whole lobby. Now she wanted to strike back. She's using blackmail, he said, and some of his old bitterness was in his voice. Anyone taking treatment from an herb doctor in this section is cut off from medical lobby service. Damn it, Jake, that could mean letting people die. Yeah, Jake sighed softly. It could mean letting people begin to think about getting rid of the lobby, too. Well, I gotta help harvest the bracky. Take it easy on operating for a while, will you, Doc? All right, Jake. But stop keeping the serious cases a secret. Two men died last month because you wouldn't call me for surgery. I've broken my oaths already. It doesn't matter anymore. It matters, boy. We've been lucky. But someday one case will go to the hospital and they'll find your former work. Then they'll really be after you. less you do, the better. Doc watched Jake slump off, then turned down into the little root cellar and back to where the room concealed behind it, where his crude laboratory lay. For the moment, he was free to work on the mystery of the black spots. He kept running into them, always on the body of someone who died of something that seemed like a normal disease— Without a microscope, he was almost helpless, but he had taken specimens and tried to culture them. Some of his cultures had grown, though they might be nothing but unknown Martian fungi or bacteria. Mars was dry and almost devoid of air, but plants and a few smaller insects had survived and adapted. It wasn't by any means lifeless. Without a microscope, he could do little but depend on his files of cases, but today there was new evidence— A villager had filched an earth medical journal from the tractor driven by Chris Ryan and forwarded it to him. He found the black specks mentioned in a single paragraph under skin diseases. Investigation of the diet was being made, since all cases were among people eating synthetics. There was another article on aberrant cases. A few strange little misbehaviors in classical syndromes. He studied that, wondering. It had to be the same thing. Diet didn't account for the fact that the specks appeared only when the patient was near death. Nor did it account for the hard lump at the base of the neck, which he found in every case he could check. That might be coincidence, but he doubted it. Whatever it was, it aggravated any other disease the patient had and made seemingly simple diseases turn out to be completely and rapidly fatal. Once syphilis had been called the great imitator, This gave promise of being worse. He shook his head, cursing his lack of equipment. Each month, people were dying with these specks, and he was helpless. The concealed door broke open suddenly, and a boy thrust his head in. Doc, there's a man here, from Einstein. Says his wife's dying. The man was already coming into the room. She's powerful sick, Doc. Had a bellyache, fever. Began throwing up. Pains under her belly like she's had before, but this time it's awful. Doc shot a few questions at him, frowning at what he heard. Then he began packing the few things that might help. There should be no appendicitis on Mars. The bugs responsible for that shouldn't have adapted to Mars normal, but more and more infections found ways to cross the border. Gangrene had been able to get by without change, it seemed. So far, none of the contagious infections except polio and the common cold had made the jump. This sounded like an advanced case, perhaps already involving peritonitis. So far he'd been lucky with penicillin, but each time he used it, with grave doubts of its action on the Mars-adapted patients. If the appendix had burst, however, it was the only possible treatment. He rifled through his stores. There was ether enough, fortunately— The villagers had made that for him out of Martian plants, using their complicated fermentation processes. He yelled for Jake, and the boy brought the old man back a moment later. "'Jake, I'll need some of that narcotic stuff. I don't want the woman writhing and tearing her stitches after the ether wears off.' "'Can't get it, Doc.' Jake's eyes seemed to cloud as he said it. "'Distilling plant broke down. "'Doc, I don't like this case. "'That woman's been to the hospital three times.' I hear she just got out recently. This might be a plant, or they figure they can't help her. They're afraid to try anything on Mars' normal flesh. They can't be proved wrong if they do nothing. Doc finished packing his bag and got ready to go out. Jake, either I'm a doctor or I'm not. I can't worry when a woman may be dying. For a second, Jake's expression was stubborn. Then the little crow's feet around his eyes deepened and the dry chuckle was back in his voice. "'Right, Dr. Feldman.' He flipped up his thumb and went off at a shuffling run toward the tractor. Lou and the man from Einstein followed Doc into the machine. It was a silent ride except for Doc's questions about the sick woman. Her husband, George Lynn, was evasive and probably ignorant. He admitted that Harriet had been to the dispensary and small infirmary that Southport called a hospital. It was the only place in the entire Southern Hemisphere where an operation could be performed legally. Most cases had to go to Northport, but Chris had been trying to expand. Apparently, she was determined to make Southport into another major center before she was called back to Earth. Doc wondered why the villagers went there. They had no medical insurance with the lobby. They couldn't afford it. Most villagers didn't have the cash, either, They were forced to mortgage their future work and that of their families to the drug plants that were run by the lobby. "'And they just turned your wife away?' Doc asked. He couldn't quite believe that of Chris. "'Well, I don't know. She wouldn't talk much. Twice she went and they gave her something. Cost every cent I could borrow. Then last time, they kept a whole couple days before they let me come and get her. But now she's a lot worse.' Jake spun about, suddenly tense. How'd you pay them last time, George? Why, they didn't ask. I told her she could put up six months for me and the kids, but nobody said nothing about it. Just gave her back to me. He frowned slowly, his dull voice uncertain. They told me they'd done all they could not to bring her back. That's why she was so strong on getting Doc. I don't like it. "'Jake said flatly. "'It stinks. "'They always charge. "'George, did they suggest she get in touch with Doc here?' "'Maybe they did, maybe not. "'Harriet did all the talking with him. "'I just do what she tells me. "'She said get Doc,' Jake swore. It smells like a trap. "'You sure she's sick, George?' "'I felt her head. "'She sure had a fever.' "'George Lynn was torn between his loyalties. "'You know me, Doc.' You fixed me up that time I had the red pip. I wouldn't pull nothing on you. Doc had a feeling that Jake was probably right, but he vetoed the suggestion that they stop to look for spies. He had no time for that. If the woman was really sick, he had to get to her at once, and even that might be too late. He remembered the woman, sickly from other treatment. He'd been forced to remove her inflamed tonsils a few months before. She'd whined and complained because he couldn't spend all his time attending her. She was a nag, a shrew, and a totally selfish woman. But that was her husband's worry, not his. He dashed into the little house when they reached Einstein, and his first glance confirmed what George Lynn had said. The woman was sick, all right. She was running a high fever. Much too high. She began whining and protesting at his having taken so long, but the pain soon forced her to stop. There may still be a chance, Doc told her husband brusquely. He threw the cleanest sheet onto a table and shoved it under the single light. "'Keep out of the way. In the other room, if you can all pile in there. This isn't exactly aseptic, anyhow. You can boil a lot of water if you want to help.' It would give them something to do, and he could use the water to clean up. There was no time to wait for it, however. He had to sterilize with alcohol and carbolic acid, and hope. He bent over the woman, ripping her thin gown across to make room for the operation. Then he swore. Across her abdomen was the unhealed wound of a previous operation. They'd worked on her at Southport. They must have removed the appendix, and then been shocked by the signs of infection. They weren't supposed to release a sick patient, but there was an easy out for them. They could remove her from the danger of spreading an unknown infection. Some doctors must have doped her up on sedatives and painkillers and sent her home, knowing that she would call for him. For that matter, They might have noticed her unrecorded tonsillectomy and considered her fair bait. He grabbed the ether and slapped a cone over her nose. She tried to protest. She never cooperated in anything, but the fumes of the ether he dipped onto the packing of the cone soon overcame that. It was peritonitis, of course. The only thing to do was go in and scrape and clean as best he could. It was a rotten job to have to do, and he should have had help. But he gritted his teeth and began— He couldn't trust anyone else to hold the instruments, even. He cleaned the infection as best he could, knowing there was almost no chance. He used all the penicillin he dared. Then he began sewing up the incision. It was all he could do, except for dressing the wound with a sterile bandage. He reached for one and stopped. While he'd been working, the woman had died, far more quietly than she had ever lived. It was probably the only gracious act of her life, but it was damning to Doc. They couldn't hide her death, and any investigation would show that someone had worked on her. To the lobby, he would be the one who had murdered her. Jake was waiting in the tractor. He took one look at Doc's face and made no inquiries. They were more than a mile away when Jake pointed back. Small in the distance, but distinct against the sands, a gray Medical Corps tractor was coming. Either they'd had a spy in the village or they'd guessed the rate of her infection very closely. They must have hoped to catch Doc in the act, and they'd barely missed. It wouldn't matter. Their pictures and what testimony they could force from the village should be enough to hang Doc. End
0: Recording